I've heard it all before. Have you heard that before? I, uh, I wonder if that's the reaction that some Christians might have to the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying together this morning. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 56. I wonder if that might actually be your reaction at some level. The truth is, in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 56, we are greeted by some of Jesus' most famous deeds. He calms the sea. He casts out demons. He heals disease and raises someone from the dead. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, if you've heard these stories before, let me encourage you to be amazed by Jesus once again. These are some of the most important stories that we have about Jesus. Do you know how I, I know that? Uh, well, we have them recorded in the Bible. Uh, and recorded not just once, but in all three synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So uh, I pray that as we study these stories, these stories that we may have heard before, I, I pray that we would be amazed by Jesus once again. And I'm praying for more than that, too. Children, uh, youth, young adults, I, I want you to hear this, too. We recount these stories about Jesus to you, not simply for your amazement in Sunday school, but so that you will personally come to know the power and love and redemption available in Jesus Christ. These stories are a part of God's one big story of love and redemption for a people who are perishing, who are oppressed, who are in need, and spiritually dead. In other words, these are stories for people like you and me. And what is most wonderful about them is that they are true. Because they are true, we have the certain hope of being delivered, being relieved and healed, and spiritually raised to life, and one day physically raised too. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you can find Luke 8, uh, on our passage beginning on page 865. While you're turning there, let's just review some of the background of Luke's Gospel and what we've studied so far. The purpose of Luke's Gospel in the Bible is to announce the redemption and salvation that the world has been waiting for since the fall of Adam. In our last two studies, we've seen Jesus demonstrate His power to forgive. And this has been coupled with an invitation to hear Him and to believe. The first half of Luke chapter 8 consists of Jesus inviting His hearers to come to Him in faith. Jesus' invitation is nothing less than an invitation to be forgiven. Now, one of the inescapable truths of the Bible is that only God can forgive sins, which really begs the question, is Jesus God? And the answer that the second half of Luke chapter 8 gives is a resounding yes. In Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 56, Jesus' divinity is demonstrated. It is demonstrated in His authority over disasters. We see that in verses 22 through 25. Jesus' divinity is demonstrated in His power to cast out demons. We see that in verses 26 to 39. And Jesus' divinity is demonstrated in His ability to heal disease and defeat death. 
We see that in verses 40 through 56. Now, the truth is, is that this section of Luke's gospel is not simply interested in demonstrating Jesus' divinity. Luke demonstrates Jesus' divinity and he demands a response to it. After each demonstration of Jesus' divinity, Luke asks, So where is your faith? Will you tell others about Jesus? Do you believe? You see, God's word is not a mere presentation of bare facts. God's revelation calls for a response of faith. Here we are called to entrust our lives to Jesus. So as we learn about Jesus overruling disasters and demons and disease and death, it's my prayer that the Lord would give us faith and stronger faith. Let's consider the first of our three points this morning. First, Jesus overrules disasters. Jesus overrules disasters. And as we uh, think about this, read verses 22 through 25 there. One day, he, this is referring to Jesus, one day he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Just prior to this event, Jesus said that those who hear his words and do them are members of his family. In verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And what do the disciples do? They set out. They obey Jesus' word. But their obedience, it actually gets them into a bit of trouble, doesn't it? They sail, Jesus sleeps, and a storm rages. Here's the thing. Our obedience to Jesus does not mean that we will escape all dangers. The disciples are in real danger here, aren't they? Verse 23, it, it fascinates me. It's as if this uh, windstorm is kind of after Jesus in particular his boat, it's described as descending on the lake. And right after Luke mentions the storm descending, he describes that their, their boats are kind of slowly descending into the water. The boats are filling with water. You know, a little water in your boat's no big deal, but this is more than a little water. Matthew's gospel account claims that the boat was being swamped. And I wonder if this reminds you of any other stories that, in the Bible that involves uh, ships and storms and sleeping. I hope that you're thinking of Jonah. Um, all of the elements of this story here reappear in the story of Jonah. Uh, listen to what we read in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Remember that Jonah, he's, he's gone on the run for God, and the Lord sends a storm after him. It descends upon him. So, verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. While the boat was being swamped, the Savior slept, just like Jonah. The difference between Jesus and Jonah, though, was that while Jonah was on the run from God, Jesus was on the run for God. He was doing all that God had asked him to do. But we we really must have some sympathy for Jesus. He was constantly teaching and working and healing. His need for rest reminds us of his humanity. And what he does in these verses, it also reminds us of his deity. However, before we see his deity displayed, we, we really see the disciples dread. And we have to have some sympathy for these men too. Uh, they were experienced fishermen. Uh, and no doubt they had been in a bad storm before on the Sea of Galilee. If anyone knew when it was time to panic, it would have been them. And Luke tells us quite plainly that they were in danger. There's no doubt about it. The disciples went to Jesus and they woke him. And did you notice what they said? Take a look at verse 24 there again. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. They spoke more truly than they knew. They were perishing. And the master of creation was the only one who could save them. And save them he did. And I don't know about you, but I breathe a sigh of relief when we, we read in the text, he awoke. <laughs> I mean, it, it must have been a significant slumber to sleep through that storm. He awoke and he rebuked the threatening winds and the raging waves. He just spoke a word to them. And they were calmed. He revealed that he really was their master. Who else but the author of creation could express such authority over the winds and the waves? Jesus, here he displays the power that Psalm 104, verse 7, ascribes to Yahweh, to God. Referring to the flood of Noah, Psalm 104 declares that Yahweh covered the earth with the waters. And then in verse 7 we read, And at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Here in in Luke 8, when Jesus rebukes them, don't the rushing winds and the raging waters flee? They're completely calm. They They cease to rush and rage. We also have here an allusion to another reference to God in the Old Testament, to Psalm 65, verse 7. Like Psalm 104, Psalm 65 praises God for His sovereign power over the created order. Psalm 65, verse 7, we learn that Yahweh stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Do you see what's being described here for us in verse 24? We're being told nothing less than Jesus is God. And why does Jesus do this? Why does he display his divine power? I think that the very next verse in Psalm 65 tells us again, right after we're told that Yahweh, he stills the roaring of the seas. We're given a purpose clause in Psalm 65, verse 8. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Look at the reaction of Jesus' disciples there in verse 25. Isn't their reaction one of awe and wonder? Just as it was described in Psalm 65, 8. Still, 
Awe and wonder are not the only reaction that the disciples should have. Though their hearts may reasonably be filled with fear, the one thing their hearts should be filled with is faith. And Jesus, ever perceiving, identifies their lack of faith. He asks, where is your faith? Doesn't that sound like a question that sounds a lot like, don't you know that I'm God? Don't you know that I came so that you would not perish, but have eternal life? Clearly, the disciples didn't fully comprehend who Jesus was. Perhaps in that moment, they had forgotten all of the miracles and signs that pointed to his deity. Jesus spoke and chaos was brought to order, just as he spoke and the worlds were formed. Jesus is the one who rules over the creation and overrules creation. He truly is the master of the material world. He is God, which makes his question in verse 25 supremely relevant. Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? But that is a question that we must answer too. Where is your faith? Where, where was your faith last week when faced with various storms in your life? Where is your faith now? Where will your faith be when a storm is hurled down upon you in the week ahead? Faith is resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The disciples believed that they were perishing, not that they were being preserved. Faith is not believing that Jesus will keep us from all harm. Jesus didn't keep his disciples from the danger of this storm. Faith is believing in the midst of the storm that Jesus is with us and will preserve us from eternal perishing. Faith is believing that though we may die, yet shall we live. John eleven twenty five. Yet shall we live because Jesus lives. We can trust Jesus in the midst of life's storms. Because they can never separate us from his love. He is with us and will be with us to the end. I wonder, how would you answer the disciples' question there in verse 25? How would you answer the question, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Would you say that he is God? Would you say that he is the one who will never leave us or forsake us? even when the most deadly and dangerous disasters come into our lives? Would you say that he is still there? Let's be honest about the claims of Christianity for a moment. We believe that Jesus is God. There are people out there claiming to be Christians, claiming to be followers of Jesus, but they reduce him down to a great teacher. That's just not being honest about the claims of the Bible. Jesus is a great teacher, but he's more than that. It's also not being honest about the claims of Jesus himself. What does he demand here? He demands faith. Who else but God can demand faith? And can I ask you another question? If even the winds and the waves will obey him, why won't you? Shouldn't you? He is their master. After all, as God, he created them. Is he your master? He created you. 
in each of our lives, there are likely areas where we are failing to give Jesus our, our trust and our obedience. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must give ourselves to Jesus in faith. And part of that means that we should even learn from the winds and the waves. And we should obey Him. It's part of our recognizing Him as our Master and our God. Well, having considered the truth that Jesus overrules disaster, let's turn now and consider our second point, that Jesus overrules demons. Jesus overrules demons. And as we do, uh, let's read Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. In verse 26, we learn that Jesus and his disciples make their way over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a mostly Gentile region. And I just note, you know, thinking about the parallels between Jesus and Jonah, Jonah going to the Gentiles, Jesus is on his way to a Gentile region as well. Anyway, immediately, uh, a man afflicted and oppressed by demons meets him. Luke, he, he interrupts kind of the, the progress of the story to give us more details about this man. He, he wore no clothes, he, he lived among the tombs, and has for some time. Later, in verse 29, we learn that he had extraordinary strength. 
Uh, Though he was kept under guard, he could break the chains on his hands and his feet. In all likelihood, this man was, was ostracized by society. When the town turns up to see the aftermath of his confrontation with Jesus, they know who this guy is. They knew enough to stay away from him before and to put him under guard. But now, they're not sure what to think of this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. What is clear through these verses is that this man was not merely bound by chains, but by demons too. When he gives Jesus his name there in verse 30, he calls himself Legion. Legion was a a military term. It referred to a military detachment of more than 5,000 soldiers. We don't know if he actually had more than 5,000 demons torturing him, but in any case, the name Legion is really more descriptive of his condition uh, than the man's actual name. Suffice it to say that there were enough demons to fill the large herd of pigs mentioned there in verse 32. This too, the the, the pigs, is an indicator that we're witnessing Jesus' ministry in a, a predominantly Gentile area. More on that in a moment, but for now, we need to recognize that this man, he was really living a tormented life. This is obvious from all the data that Luke gives to us about the man, but it is ironic because when the man speaks to Jesus, or perhaps we should say when the the demon's speaking through the man, they immediately beg Jesus not to torment them. See that there in verse 28. A few moments ago, uh, when we were thinking about the question about Jesus' question to his disciples, where is your your faith? I suggested that Jesus' question revealed that his disciples didn't fully comprehend who he was. The disciples don't fully comprehend who Jesus is, but the demons do. This shows us that you you can know who Jesus is and not submit to him and serve him. There are plenty of people in this world who know exactly who Jesus is but refuse to submit to him as their Lord and their God what about you friends it's not enough to know who Jesus is he calls for us to respond to him in humble faith and repentance is your life marked by submission to and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you know the irony that the disciples don't fully comprehend who Jesus is, but that the demons do is, is actually richer still. It's a thicker irony. In the announcement of Jesus' birth being foretold in the first chapter of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, we're told that Jesus would be called what he's called in verse 28, the Son of the Most High God. Who would have thought that the first time that this title was used after the angelic announcement would be from the lips of a demon-possessed man. These spiritual creatures, evil though they are, recognize Jesus for who He truly is. This title, Son of the Most High God, reminds us of Jesus' royal, messianic, and divine authority. That's why the demons are afraid. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Upon this kingdom that they've been active in. They should be afraid. Jesus has come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And that means relieving this poor, afflicted man. Who else but the sovereign God can overrule the purposes of Satan and his minions? When God commands Satan to flee from his servants, the devil can do nothing but go. 
And the demons you see here, they are begging, bargaining with Jesus. They request not to be sent into the abyss, which is likely a reference to the place of final judgment. So why does Jesus give them permission to enter into the pigs? Well, Luke doesn't exactly say. What we do know is that they're entering into the pigs and being driven down into the steep bank and into the water to drown proves that they had left the man. Jesus does nothing physical. He merely speaks. And the power of his word delivers this man from terrible bondage, much like his powerful word delivered the disciples from the raging wind and sea. The deliverance that Jesus brings is a divine and merciful deliverance because Jesus is the God of mercy. If we call ourselves believers and followers of Jesus, we too, like our Savior, ought to be concerned about those who are afflicted and oppressed. So many people in our world are afflicted by mental illnesses. Some of them we we see and their, their appearance is disheveled. Maybe we've seen some people who appear to talk to themselves and are disturbed. Perhaps you've been made nervous by interactions or encounters. What is more, we need to keep in mind that demons are real and they really do afflict people. It's hard to say for certain if one person or another is suffering affliction from a demon, but but we do know this, that when Jesus encountered a person in such great need, he did not look away and he did not leave them. Jesus' compassion and mercy upon this man, I don't know if you noticed this, it's followed by a series of different responses. The people of the region respond to this miraculous display of power and mercy upon the demon-possessed man by sending Jesus away. The herdsmen, they they plead with Jesus to leave there in verse 37. They were concerned about their own interests, financial and personal. The value of a large herd of pigs in that day was no doubt a considerable sum. Jesus' arrival, what he was doing, had come at great cost to them. What other cost would there be if he stuck around? He changed the life of this demon-possessed man. How would he change their lives? The people of the region couldn't risk losing anymore. There's another response, a more promising response. The man who has experienced the great mercy of Jesus wants to be with him. Did you notice that? He pleads with Jesus to let him go with him to the other side. You see that in verse 38. Let me ask you this. If you've been healed and redeemed redeemed by Jesus, shouldn't this be your heart's desire? Shouldn't we be eager to be with Jesus? We should. And sometimes we're not as eager as we should be. Maybe if if that's you, uh, if you feel like you're in a spiritual season where where your desire to be with Jesus is, is waning, Maybe you should remember just how much Jesus has done for you. Take some time this week, and maybe this afternoon or this evening, and think about all that Jesus has done for you. Think about his taking on flesh, his bearing the difficulties of this life, and most especially his cross. Remember all that Jesus has done for you. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in verse 39, 
there is another great display of mercy from Jesus. Jesus, he tells the man that he must stay. That's that's a command of mercy. Do you know why? This man is to remain and to tell others throughout the whole Gentile region about how God has been merciful to him. When Jesus would have been just to let their rejection of him fall upon their heads in judgment, he leaves a messenger of mercy among them to keep heralding this good news that in Jesus there is mercy and forgiveness from God. Jesus leaves one who will plead with the people to see what God has done and to believe that God is indeed merciful. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, I I want you to know that, that we're glad that you're here. I also wonder what you think about what we've been learning in Luke's gospel. I wonder if you identify with with anyone in this story here. The Bible tells us that in many ways, we're a lot like the man who was in bondage by the demons. Not that we ourselves are slaves to demons, but that we're slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says about each one of us. We were all made to experience God's love, His merciful rule in our lives. But we, like the herdsmen, have rejected God. We've wanted to live life our own way rather than God's way. And that rebellion and rejection of God is what the Bible calls sin. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes uh, us all, each and every one of us here this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work, now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul describes us as following the prince of the power of the air, which is another way of saying that we're following Satan. In our pursuit of freedom from God, we only bring ourselves into more bondage, bondage to sin. And it is only Jesus who through his great mercy can free us. Jesus is fully God and fully man and he lived the life that we ought to have lived before God. He was completely obedient to God, obedient even to the point of death. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute. Jesus took upon himself the sins and the punishment for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their rebellion and put their faith in him. And three days later, Jesus got up from the grave, showing that he has broken the bondage that sin and death bring. And Jesus now freely offers mercy to all, all of those who would ever turn from their sins and follow him in faith. Friend, like the herdsmen, don't send Jesus away. Don't do what they did. Friend, leave your sins behind and follow Jesus. If you do follow Jesus, you will escape the judgment that we all deserve. We all deserve to be thrown into the abyss. But if we give our hearts and our lives to Jesus in repentance and faith, we will forever experience the saving mercy of God. We will experience the saving mercy of Christ. And we will undergo a radical change. Just like the man who was demon-possessed. 
Just like the change he underwent, not only were the demons expelled, but suddenly he was properly clothed and in his right mind. And in some ways, that is what conversion looks like. Sin is being removed, and we are being slowly remade and made new. The mercy of Jesus is powerful and effective in the lives of his people. It manifests itself by repentance, which brings radical change in our lives. Repentance is throwing off the chains of sin and embracing the mercy of Christ. So if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and trust in him as your Savior and God, please do come and find me at the door after the service or speak with the the friend or family member or the neighbor that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news of what it means to receive mercy from Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier that this scene is a demonstration of Jesus' divinity and His power to overrule demons. We know that not only through the demons' recognition of Jesus and the Old Testament pattern of God Himself commanding Satan and His dominions to to depart, We also know it through the final verse of this scene. Look carefully at verse 39 again. We read, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. In in leaving this man behind, Jesus instructed him to go and tell others how much God has done for him. But didn't Jesus do this for him? Didn't Jesus heal him? Yes, Jesus is God. And this man appears to understand that. When Jesus, when he carries out this commission from Jesus, and I think that we're to understand from verse 39 that that he is faithfully carrying out this commission from Jesus. When he carries out this commission from Jesus to go and to declare how much God has done for him, what does he do? We read, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much, who? He, He proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus is the God who overrules demons. And this is the same commission that Jesus has given to each one of us who have come to place our faith in him. We are called to take God's message of mercy to those in our homes and our families. We need to take God's message of mercy to those in our schools and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And we need to proclaim just how much God has done in Jesus Christ. Just how much Jesus himself has done for us. Well, having seen that Jesus overrules disasters and demons, we turn to consider our third and final point. Jesus overrules disease and death. And these two stories are tied together. Jesus overrules disease and death. Let's read Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a charge, a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him 
and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's begin at the end. Uh, for these verses at first kind of appear to end on a strange note. Unlike the conclusion of the previous section, uh, where Jesus told the demon-possessed man to go and tell everyone how much he had done for him, this section ends in kind of a completely different fashion, doesn't it? It ends with Jesus urging silence. Why can the Gerasene man tell others that all, all that God has done for him, but why can't this family tell anyone what God has done for them? Jesus has a reason for this. In, in Jairus' home, we're back in a Jewish region where the Gerasene man was in a Gentile region. The Jews, uh, uh, Jairus' home is in a, a, a Jewish region. We've we got to keep in mind that the Jews, they were looking for a Messiah, but the Gentiles were not. Uh, Jesus didn't want this family to go about and proclaim all that had happened in their home because the Jews would rush to anoint Jesus as their Messiah, and that would rush Jesus to his death. Jesus has much more teaching to do before he makes his way to Jerusalem to die. Jesus needs to define and explain for everyone what it really means for him to be the Messiah. Jesus needed to define what it meant to be the Messiah according to the expectations of the Old Testament and not according to the expectations that had developed there in the first century in his day and age. First century Jews thought that God's Messiah would ride into town to conquer Rome. But Jesus needed to teach everyone that while God's Messiah would ride into town, he wasn't coming to conquer Rome, but sin and death. This is why Jesus commands silence, so that he does not go to the cross before his appointed time. Only when he had fully completed all of his teaching and righteous obedience on earth 
Would he give up his life in death? And then, once and for all, show everyone that he really did have the power to overrule death by his resurrection from the grave. And what we have in these verses is something of a foreshadowing of Jesus' power to overrule death. So having considered the end, let's go back to the beginning of these verses. After having been rejected by a largely Gentile community on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples return to the largely Jewish community on the western side of the sea. And the two miracles that we see performed here in this narrative, they they probably take place somewhere near Capernaum. As is often the case, Jesus, he is greeted by crowds, and Luke tells us that they were actually waiting for Jesus. Maybe they have in mind this situation that's going on with Jairus and his daughter. Nevertheless, people, they, they kind of always seem to be looking for Jesus. In this narrative, we meet this synagogue ruler named Jairus, who is looking for Jesus because he has an urgent need. His daughter is dying, we see there in verse 42. Now, in those days, a synagogue ruler was something like kind of an administrator of the synagogue. He was charged with keeping up the building and making sure that worship could occur there. In that setting, he wasn't uh, really a spiritual leader. He was more involved in kind of administration, logistics, and practical details. Nevertheless, he's an important figure in this community. So when Jairus finds Jesus, he falls at his feet and pleads with Jesus to come and heal his daughters. Now take note of this. Here is a distinguished man of the community prostrating himself before Jesus. Here is a father who loves his daughter, as all fathers should. Here is a father who is willing to beg Jesus to save his child's life. Brothers, do we do this for our children? Do we cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus before the throne of grace and plead with our Savior to save our children from sin and death? Let us give ourselves to this work. We should take note of what Jairus does here for another reason. This is what the demon-possessed man did in verse 28. It's also what the woman with the issue of blood will do in verse 47. Perhaps Luke is trying to teach us something about how we ought to honor the Lord Jesus. No matter how dignified we are or disheveled we are, we should cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. He is willing to save and redeem. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of us casting our cares upon him. Now notice halfway through verse 42, we see that Jesus, he actually starts on the way. He starts to make his way to Jairus' home. And Jesus clearly understands that this is an urgent matter. Almost as soon as they set out, there's there's an interruption on this journey. Jesus stops because someone has touched him. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches him. She believed that Jesus could heal her. Now, according to Israelite law, uh, this woman was unclean. She was not to be touched, nor was she to touch anyone else, for she would make them unclean. However, she touches Jesus' garments, and she's immediately 
healed. She's made clean. When this woman touched Jesus, he didn't lose any virtue of his cleanness. Nor did he lose any power. Rather, the power of God went out from him to heal her. Notice what, or better yet, who healed this woman. It was Jesus. She had faith in Jesus and in his divine power. Jesus, we see here, is not content to continue on to Jairus' house. He wants to know who touched him. It's entirely possible that Jesus didn't know who touched him. Though he was fully divine, he is also fully human. In taking flesh to himself in the incarnation, Jesus welcomed some of the limitations of human nature without cost to his deity. Whether or not Jesus knew who touched him, one thing does appear clear. He wanted to publicly acknowledge the faith of the person who did touch him. At some level, he wanted this woman's faith displayed. Faith is personal, but it is not private. Faith is by nature public. Jesus calls this woman to make herself known, not so that she might be embarrassed, but so that she might be held up as an example. Jesus wants the crowd to know what kind of faith they ought to have. And he wants Jairus to know what kind of faith he's going to need to have. For suddenly someone comes from Jairus' home and they arrive with the fatal news that his daughter is dead. You know, this interruption seemed to cost the life of Jairus' daughter. But I think that this interruption is actually crucial to Jairus' faith. This woman that Jesus healed, she was bleeding for 12 years. How old is Jairus' daughter? She's 12 years old. Jairus needed to see this and know this. Death, it, it seemed to be setting in on this woman, encroaching upon her life for 12 years. But Jesus, he pushes back the force of death because he, he is the God of life. He gives life. And the healing of this woman was evidence from Jesus to Jairus that he is in fact the God who gives life and defeats death. The answer to all of the fears welling up in Jairus is faith in Jesus. The faith that this woman displayed. And when Jesus and Jairus, when they finally arrive, Mark's gospel tells us that the wailers and mourners are already there present at the home. So in, in those days, they would, they would hire people when someone died to come and wail and mourn their loss. It's not that Jesus is oblivious to the earlier report that the girl is dead. Rather, he knows that he's about to reverse that report. That's why he says, do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. You see, from Jesus' vantage point, knowing what he knows, knowing 
what he is about to do. Her present condition is no more harmful than an afternoon nap. Jesus knew that this death would not finally hold this 12-year-old girl in the grave. Having dismissed the doubters, Jesus, he takes the dead girl by the hand. Now, just like touching the woman who was bleeding for 12 years should have made Jesus ceremonially unclean, so touching the dead body, of a, a, so touching a dead body makes you ceremonially unclean. It should have made Jesus ceremonially unclean, but it didn't. Uncleanness is never transferred from the diseased and the dead to Jesus. And that's because Jesus always heals them of their disease and brings them back from the dead. Are you not amazed by the power of Jesus' word? Just like the calming of the winds and the waves, all he had to do was speak. Just like casting out the demons, all he had to do was speak. So all he had to do in order to resuscitate this dead girl was to take her by the hand and speak words of life to her. Two simple words in verse 53. Child, arise. See, when death is faced with the God of life, it must flee. Death loses its sting and the grave loses its captive. Death is setting in upon each one of us. But here's the question. Are we afraid or do we believe? Are you afraid of what death holds for you? Or do you believe with full confidence and assurance that the God of life, the God who overrules death, will make good on his word and give you eternal life? Do not be afraid. Believe in each one of these scenes when Jesus' divine power, power is displayed, it's responded to with fear. In verse 25, we're told the disciples were afraid after Jesus calmed the winds and the waves. In verses 35 and 37, we're told that the people of the garrisons were afraid and filled with fear. In verse 50, Jesus sees the fear welling up in Jairus and he tells him, Do not fear. Only believe. Brothers and sisters, we must take to heart these words from our Savior. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. By thinking about Jesus' divine power and our faith in Him. In these three narratives, Jesus' divinity is plainly and powerfully demonstrated. The question that Luke's gospel presses upon us is whether or not we believe that Jesus is our God. And our Savior, who else but God can overrule disasters, demons, disease, and death? Who is Jesus? Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 56 tells us that Jesus is God. He is the God of creation, the God of mercy, and the God of life. Is He your God? Let's pray together.